Welcome, morticians, to the Murmurs from the Morgue podcast. We've got lists, deep dives, theories, and queries, and we're here each month to share them with you. I'm Kelly. And I'm Bree. And this month, we've got a spooky, super special October episode. We wanted to have a chat about some good old-fashioned body horror, our favorite goopy, gory, gruesome practical effects, and the masters that make them. And because this is a super special spooky month, we've invited our friends Nick and Evan from Void Video to join us. Hey, fellas. Hey, how's it going? We're glad to be here. Glad to have you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed having you guys on our podcast we're excited to come and join you guys. You kind of birthed our moniker a little bit when you when you asked me to pitch our podcast on Guest Spot on our show. And we kind of have a weekly video store staff shelf of sorts. It was birthed from a place of us talking about movies already a lot. And then also from a, a longing for kind of the video store, you know, recommendations and, and conversations that came along with that of yesteryear. Because I know that was very formative for me growing up. I, I discovered a lot of the stuff I like now through the video store because that was, that was how I was able to watch movies. I didn't have a theater in my town and stuff. Getting the recommendations from the people working in the store and the other customers was a cool way to find new stuff. And that's kind of gone now because it's mm-hmm. just, it's all streaming. True, true. Yeah, and we love that. So usually when people talk about body horror, they usually focus, I feel like on directors specifically, they're like David Cronenberg, you know, body horror. But body horror isn't really directly because of the directors. It's more about the special effects artists. So mm-hmm. that's why we decided to do our episode focusing more on the special effects artists instead of just the directors when it comes to body horror. And in this episode, we're specifically going to be focusing on Rick Baker, Rob Bottin, Robert Kurtzman, and Screaming Mad George. So that's what's coming up. But yeah. first, we're going to talk about some things we've been up to. Bree, what have you been up to? So, Kelly, I have been up to some pretty cool stuff. I was covering another film festival this past weekend. It was called Nightstream. It was a pretty good film festival. Obviously, as the name denotes, it's streaming. And it was four different film festivals yeah. in the one film festival. And I just wanted to highlight a few films that I thought that were really good. And the first one was a film actually you told me about Kelly because you were like, Brie is going to love this movie. And I did. I loved it. It was called After Blue, which oh, yeah. simply I would just describe it as like a colorful queer dune. That's a really good way to describe it. <laughs> Thank you. I watched that one also and the imagery in that movie is astounding. Yeah, kind of like a Barbarella feel to it. Yeah, I was going to say it's like an especially horny Barbarella. Yes, which is yeah. like... <laughs> description of everything I want. Yeah, it's super horny. (laughs) (laughs) Great movie. (laughs) Another film I thought that was really cool, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, which is kind of like a one-take sci-fi movie. The fact that it's one-take alone made it fucking amazing. It was awesome, incredible. I really enjoyed it. And then lastly, the film that I liked the best from this fest was Name Above Title, which is this completely silent serial killer thriller that like takes these elements of 1970s and 1950s films and like wraps them up into this really beautiful package and it was also filmed in Portugal which I think is really unique in general so yeah those were the films that I liked and I highly recommend everyone check those out fantastic you went to that fest too didn't you Evan yeah I, I did and I saw name above title also and, when it, and I knew when I saw it I'm like this is a brie ass movie yeah, and then I saw like a day or two later you watched it so it was cool and I, I like all three of those that you mentioned especially beyond the infinite two minutes I thought the one take and just the whole concept of the two link screens that are only a couple minutes apart is different than most time travel movies and the comedic spin was kind of different too because it was super funny the whole time but while the stakes were simultaneously still kept high the movie blew my mind especially the whole concept behind it i was like could this actually happen if i had these capabilities that concept was cool and i'm trying to think what else did i watch there mad god i watched mad god and i really really liked mad god 
that one was was just like a visual feast for the eyes but also i think there's a lot of messages woven into this imagery too it's like it's not just eye candy i think there's heavy stuff going on within that movie Mm -hmm. yeah i unfortunately i didn't get to see that one but did you have like a fest favorite honestly my favorite would have probably been mad god with beyond the infinite two minutes and poser i think kind of close behind too. I forgot about Poser. I really liked that movie and kind of the way Yeah, it, Poser was pretty good. It was cool how it explored like even the somebody who is doing fine and is mildly successful and has talent still chooses to chase in the shadow of someone else. I don't know. I said that really poorly, but the movie's really good. Kelly, what have you been up to? So I am in the process of covering Toronto After Dark Film Festival right now, which I'm doing. Everyone's remote for that one, which is kind of cool. I did TIFF, which I think I talked a little bit about in the last episode because that was in September. I've been doing a couple of reviews the one that I really enjoyed that I would highly recommend to you guys because it's just so freaking funny and because also we talked about the franchise is the slumber party massacre remake i absolutely loved it it is so funny there were parts i was sitting at home in my empty house by myself laughing my ass off like i was legit laughing out loud and i have not done that to a movie in a long ass time it's really fun i loved it a lot thought she did a great job with it and it's definitely in my top three of the year so far i've seen a lot of press who have seen it who have said that it's their favorite horror movie of 2021 the only thing I'm disappointed is that it's not a musical. They should, I mean, they got to do the sequel with the music in it again. <laughs> it's a great horror movie, but it's also just super freaking fun. Her name is Danishka Esterhazy. She also did the Banana Splits movie, which is, it was fun enough, I yes, guess. she did. She's <laughs> a very interesting filmmaker. It's animated, right? No. <laughs> it, it's not animated. It, it's animatronic. 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 Okay, okay. And it's written by Suzanne Kiley, who wrote Leprechaun Returns, which was directed by our bud Stephen Kostansky. She wrote Ash vs. Evil Dead for that show for like a year or two, I think. So it's it's definitely got that punchy sense of humor to it. So yeah, highly recommend. Talk about an underrated script writer. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to see more from her. I hope we see more from her. Yeah, that's some big stuff. Anything up with you, Nick? I saw the pilot episode of The Chucky Show, which is on sci-fi. Oh, How's that? I thought it was actually pretty good. It's um definitely very updated for the times, even more so than the the last remake. But it actually is pretty good. And Chucky himself, like I don't know who portrayed Chucky, but did a really good job. And I think it's gonna be a good show to watch. Isn't it Brad Dourif is doing that one? Because I think it's still uh, Don Mancini. Unpopular opinion. I actually liked the last movie. I, d- I did too. I love that movie. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad we're all in agreement. The smart doll was like yeah. so smart, and I loved it. But the the new show is pretty cool and it's got a lot of cool updates and it's definitely aimed towards a younger demographic i think but i think that's awesome too yeah it's good to get horror into younger audiences and into their hands exactly. and i think slumber party massacre kind of does that a little bit too like it's a really good teen horror at the same time and i think it's something that we really should encourage is more teen horror because like i know for a lot of us that's kind of around the time that we found it is there was a lot of horror that was targeted towards our yeah. demographic at the time and so it's nice to see a return to that because for a while they've been left out of the conversation and totally. I Totally. Bring them back in. I, I hate how people always shit talk teen horror. I watched a movie at Fantastic Fest. There's someone inside your house. That's a pretty good teen horror movie, I think. It feels like it's also geared towards a, a bit younger audience, but I enjoyed it. I, I liked it a lot. Cool slasher. And it's on Netflix now, I think. 
that's what we've been up to <laughs> for the past <laughs> month or so. Let's talk a little bit about body horror. Let's talk a little bit about some practical effects, guys. In general, body horror is the body is doing weird shit. You know, it's moving in ways it shouldn't move. It's growing things that it shouldn't grow. It's diseases popping up. It's not getting harmed in a typical way, like a slasher movie. Like if someone gets their head cut off, that's not really body horror. And it's not like someone who's already a monster who's just being a monster. It's like your body unexpectedly doing weird shit. So that's like mainly the focus. To add to that as, as well, so with body horror, it kind of really, the term started in 1983 in an article written by Philip Brophy called Horrorality, the textuality of the contemporary horror film. It really was kind of birthed in the early 80s because the practice of genetic engineering and the rise of the AIDS epidemic inspired these new societal fears. So it was kind of born as a result of those fears. Now, body horror as a genre does go back. It has roots in Gothic literature. So it, it did kind of start with Frankenstein with Mary Shelley way, way, way back in the day before they really knew what body horror was. And of course, Cronenberg came into the scene with Shivers in 1975, Rabbit in 1977, The Brood, which actually was released the same day as Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979. Fun fact about that. But really with body horror, there's a focus on biology and extreme biological manipulation, this uncontrolled transformation, this whole idea. It's, it's really a strong reflection of our modern fears. So rapid updates to technology, the fears of abnormal pregnancy, dangers of sexual promiscuity, transformation of adolescent to adult, the coming of age idea, really a lot of it is related to the fact that our bodies are weird and gross and we cannot trust them. <laughs> there is some really great cultural roots with body horror as well. We know that Japanese body horror has a really strong influence with technologically advanced horror and technologically advanced body horror specifically because they are a technologically advanced society. So there's a lot of blends of technology and biology. And then there's also a really big focus on a sort of perverse sexuality, which when you look at Japan, it is kind of a sexually repressed society. So that does kind of click in there as well. Canadian body horror, which was kind of really birthed by Cronenberg and the modern violent popular sense that we have it now. For me, as a Canadian, because I'm not sure if anyone's aware, but I'm Canadian. Yeah. For me, I think the cultural themes with Canadian body horror, because as you know, I love to talk about cultural themes and how it relates to like our fears in film and then how that relates to everything. But I think for Canada, it's, we kind of have a national identity crisis between our current culture and the cultures we've destroyed along the way with residential schools and things like that. So there's always themes of transformation or mutation that I think tie back to that idea that we really are kind of of uncomfortable in our own cultural skin. So I think with body horror, again, it really kind of has that focus on biology. It has that focus on the weird, gross things about us. And it really makes it fantastically opportunistic for practical effects because you can really explore how gross and disgusting we can make things be. Absolutely. It's interesting as well, because like I was saying with body horror, it really was popularized in the 1980s. But a lot of the movies that popularized it, you look at The Fly, The Blob, The Thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, these were all remakes of older films. So these remakes really bring those fears to a crescendo in a way by exploring those fears and exploring the, the weird grossness to kind of a more advanced and more explosive level, I think. And going back to you mentioning Japanese influence in body horror as well. Yes, Japanese media has influence from body horror. A lot of their anime has body horror. So if you're not familiar with that, check out some anime. And if you want some recommendations for some animes to check out that include body horror, I recommend that you listen to our previous episode on horror anime that we did with special effects artist Stephen Kostansky. Bring it all together. Yeah, that's a great episode. I also recommend you go and listen to that episode. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
I like seeing the different interpretations that people have of the human body and how it, it's like, a, like you said, a grosser way of interpreting things than, than most seeing how body horror has changed from its inception to, to now based on societal changes and stuff is a really cool thing to see. Freaking love cultural uh, history and how it relates to horror movies because it's so freaking fascinating. And I think that's a really great example, particularly in body horrors, the ways that we explore those transformations. Moving on to how special effects relates to that and why we're talking about special effects today. Firstly, special effects mean a lot to me. Personally, I dabble in special effects work. Right now, just a plug. If you guys have perhaps seen like zombie face masks, they're made by this guy who I work for. His company is called Crimson Hand FX. I recommend that you check it out. I know Evan has a zombie mask. I did, and I found this, and I had no idea that you were associated with this. I can recommend <laughs> this mask from a consumer level, and you know, and not have any affiliation, you know, tied to my recommendation because I bought it, and then Bree's like, "Oh yeah, I helped make those." <laughs> But it looks amazing. And I, every time I wear it out, I either A, scare the shit out of people or B, like, <laughs> get a lot of compliments on it. So like often people talk about whether it's the writer, director, or editor that truly makes the film, like auteur theory, basic auteur theory. David Cronenberg, he is the progenitor of body horror, but no one really ever argues in favor of the special effects artist making a film. Whereas I've seen a lot of films where if it didn't have good special effects, it would be a completely useless film. A lot of films that I know of are completely saved by the special effects that they have. So if anything, this is a celebration of the special effects artists that have made the films that we love and made the disgusting body horror that we love. It's also interesting how one person makes something and then everyone else is trying to replicate it and they like keep bringing them back to do the same thing like Rick Baker did in American Werewolf in London which we'll talk about later but then like anytime a werewolf movie's made he's always you know in consideration or you know people look up to his work. It's almost like it's their specialty. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh I mean you look at Tom Savini for example who is known as the Sultan of Splatter because he really came into popularity for his ability to make gore effects really look visceral by including as much as the actors he possibly could. And you go back to things like Friday the 13th with having Kevin Bacon have the arrow come through his throat. Friday the 13th part four, I believe, when they have Jason's head slide through the machete. And there's so many scenes that, that he created that he tried to use the actor as much as he possibly could, creating these illusions. Every time I say that word, it makes me think of Arrested Development. I don't have time for your magic tricks. Illusions, Dad. You don't have time for my illusions. <laughs> <laughs> but creating these illusions that, uh, that, that made it really look real. And I think one of the things that Tom Savini did for the act of special effects and practical effects is he really popularized it by going on shows like David Letterman and making himself be a celebrity in his own right for that before he was even really getting a celebrity role for doing his acting roles and directing and things like that. So I think when you look at some of the really popular practical effects artists, it really goes back to Tom Savini putting that out there and making it known that like, hey, there are people that do these things and they do it for a living and they do it really fucking well and they've become really celebrated. I definitely have a lot of respect for him as well well as every single one of these artists that we are going to talk about in a few minutes. It's just really cool to see the way they innovate on creating these different things. And especially when they're working on a limited budget and they have to get super oh, yeah. creative about how to, you know, how to execute it. Absolutely. There's one story I think from Dawn of the Dead where there's a scene where there's a screwdriver that goes into a zombie's ear and they literally just like used a drinking straw and like spray painted it silver. <laughs> like it was, again, they had no budget. It was bare bones, but they made it work and they made it look really fantastic. Just like a little bit of history of special effects before we get into our discussion. So special effects makeup has always been used, obviously, ever since people have been dying on screen or like anyone's face has been changed. Notably like Frankenstein and the Wolfman from the 1920s or 30s who was made by Jack 
Jack Pierce, who was kind of like a big founding special effects artist in his own right. Also like Psycho using the chocolate blood, which is a big deal. But it didn't truly become a huge thing until Dick Smith entered the scene in the 1960s, who is known mm-hmm. as the godfather of makeup. So there's a few other people that also were like popping up along this time. Stan Winston, who notably did Jurassic Park. John Chambers, they were also like at the forefront of creating what we now know as modern prosthetic work for makeup and special effects. So Dick Smith, he created multiple advancements in prosthetic makeup that are still used today. He just made all these things that like made it so much simpler to do special effects. One of the first things he did is actually the Godfather. He created the first bleeding special effects, like the dude who gets shot in the head that had never been done before, like with it being like an active bleeding situation. His biggest work was on The Exorcist in 1973. Mm. That really launched him and special effects in general into stardom. And here we are. (laughs) Dick Smith dedicated his later life to teaching up and coming special effects artists makeup skills. And one of his most notable persons that he taught and mentored was Rick Baker, who is the first person that we wanted to speak about today. Yeah, and uh, Rick Baker is kind of infamous in the special effects industry because he won the inaugural Academy Award for Best Makeup for An American Werewolf in London, and he's won, I think, six more since, so seven total. But he started making monster masks in his bedroom when he was 10, and he was fascinated with the universal monsters, which you talked about before, like Frankenstein, and he was specifically interested in Frankenstein and the Wolfman, who, which is interesting because he later went on to do the special effects for the 2010 Wolfman movie. His his first professional job was as an assistant to prosthetic makeup effect artist Dick Smith, as you mentioned. From there, he kind of springboarded into, he created the King Kong suit in the 1976 film, and he also apparently wore it, but was never credited for an acting role, essentially, because it, people inside the costume, you know, are really doing the performance. During my research for this episode, I noticed that there's a lot of stuff that affects people are not credited for, because like I watched some interviews with, with my pick, and he was talking about stuff he did on movies that were massive movies that he was not credited for at all and like that's kind of fucked up (laughs) a lot of these people outside of rick baker and tom savini people don't know of them and they do like the most incredible art yeah and going back to the universal monsters and people being uncredited a big proponent of those original universal monster movies was vera west who did all the costuming for all that stuff and like nobody knows her name but Mm -hmm. she was like a big proponent in all of those early 50s universal monster movies but going back to rick baker he kind of became known for the gorilla suits and he would lend it over the years to many movies, including Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes and 1987's Harry and the Hendersons, which Baker says is his proudest achievement. But the 1981 film, An American Werewolf in London, directed by John Landis, and it has a pretty widely considered the best werewolf transformation sequence in any movie. And the effects in it are incredible. I think it was also one of my scenes for like my favorite use of music in a horror film as well, that use of Blue Moon during that transformation scene. So the scene in question, the one that really won him the inaugural academy award was the main character he is bitten by a werewolf in the opening of the movie and he slowly becomes a werewolf and he's walking up to his house and there's a dog's barking at him a cat is hissing at him very big foreshadowing and then there's like a montage of just him just doing normal things before full moon hits and blue moon starts playing and it really showcases the horror of becoming transformed into a werewolf that i think a lot of movies kind of neglect it seems so agonizing with 
just adds to the horror in a really delicious and terrifying way. So it opens with him saying like, I'm burning and like, he's still a human. The In the original Wolfman, you know, it just shows his legs and then he like grows hair and then it like just pans up and he's in the suit already or in all the makeup. But this one really shows like the limbs being stretched out and like his back is pushed into place to get that like arch of a wolf. And it's really incredible how he did it. And the pivotal scene is the face. Like the final thing, they save mm. it for the face and his face stretches out and his ears stretch out and you can all see it all in close-ups and it's just really well done and the performance as well is really helps make that the effects work i think i also love his friend like gets attacked by the wolf his prosthetic work his face yeah. getting torn off and whatnot yeah. i really love that all shredded that's so a really good one too actually the original version of that and john landis said that he thought the transformation sequence was like too long and gruesome and he wanted it to be shorter but he was so impressed with the effects work that he just let it go and like let them go crazy with it <laughs> that's perfect another fun fact actually is a lot of special effects artists they make really good prosthetics really good effects work and then directors just cut it out because it's oh, too yeah. long or too gory <laughs> In my third film, I'll get to uh, that. But uh, <laughs> Michael Jackson loved the werewolf transformation sequence so much and the effects that he actually hired them to do the thriller video, the iconic dancing in the cemetery video. And Rick Baker and all of the crew who like made the prosthetics and stuff are actually the people in the costumes, I guess, which wow. is kind of cool. Apparently, Rick Baker himself is one of them that comes out of the tomb <laughs> in the video. <laughs> that subject, I know that Stephen Kostansky, you know, another famous special effects artist, he recently shared a video of his new TV show, Day of the Dead, and he shared a video of him as a zombie coming out of the ground or something. That's just something where, like, he probably did that, probably because they needed a person to be in there. So hmm. it's just kind of funny how that happens. I was already interested in that show, and I had no idea Stephen Kostansky was involved, but I, my interest just shot way up in that now. Yes, same. <laughs> I had no idea. That's so cool. We love Stephen Kostansky here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> we could have chosen him, but I feel like we talk about him too much. <laughs> <laughs> What's your second movie? The second movie, it kind of directly relates to it because, you know, I was watching some interviews with Rick Baker, but in one of them, I saw that before an American Werewolf in London, he would pitch ideas to people for effects. He'd be like, oh, I want to do something fun. But back then it was like very, they wanted simple stuff. They didn't want anything fun or crazy. And then people saw an American Werewolf in London and they're like, these people could do anything. And he was handed the script to David Cronenberg's Videodrome, which is my second movie. And he said, how the hell am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and apparently there is several effect shots in the script including a second tv sequence the iconic tv sequence where like he's caressing the tv i guess there was supposed to be a second scene with that and they cut it because they were just like we don't know how to do this and david cronenberg was really good at listening and very much more understanding of hey we can't do some of the stuff <laughs> but the stuff that they did do is quite crazy and at one point max becomes a human vcr with a slit in his stomach that allows him to put a cassette in and also take out a gun which is like it's sort of a metaphor for the consumption of violent media leading to real world violence because he's being inserted media and then he's using that to commit crimes like he kills people with that gun and the effects work is incredible yeah the way they structure that metaphors is really Just cool yeah, and it, yeah, it totally is like a vagina. Yeah, <laughs> Def, you, you could say that. Okay. <laughs> Anything resembling a vagina, I love. Yeah, just like the the TV scene where like the TV is coming out, and it's I guess it's like a dental dam or something like that. And Rick Baker has said that it's like something that's common, I guess, in effects work to use like a dental dam. And the actor said that it felt like a human breast. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
And this movie itself is more psychological than a lot of body horror. I also think the actual body horror in it, the effects work and him kind of being consumed by this TV show is crazy. And it's really good metaphor, like you said. And it's cool visually, too. Like, it's super literal with the tape and it turns into a gun and he pulls it back out. But I don't know. It just works. It's awesome. The special effects in Videodrome are amazing, specifically because it's super unique as well. That movie is just, like, unrivaled. Like, nothing else I've ever seen that's even remotely compared to that. Yeah, the scene where the person's, like, coming through the TV screen and stuff. I love that, too. That looks really awesome. And it's just really well done effects. Definitely. I get why he's cemented as one of the best. Yeah, and I'm just curious on what they couldn't do you know because what the stuff that they did is kind of crazy enough like what could they do (laughs) so in the final movie i went with the non-horror movie men in black the 1997 movie which also won for best makeup but rick baker designed the giant alien insect that eats a farmer named edgar and uses his skin and clothes as a disguise and this movie itself is not particularly horror but any scene involving edgar and this alien insect and him slowly decaying and trying to hide as a human is very much body horror. It creeped me out when I was young watching those yeah, movies yeah, and sure. the scenes with him in it were like, I was like, oh man, that's creepy. <laughs> oh yeah. And that performance, is it, is it Vincent D'Onofrio that did that one? Yes. And that yeah. performance, yeah. like all time iconic comedic oh, so performance. Good. So good. <laughs> just the way he says sugar is like, it just always <laughs> rings in my head. Yeah. Sugar. <laughs> I need sugar. <laughs> Edgar, what on earth was that? Sugar. Give me sugar. So the slow transformation of the decaying of skin and he's trying to pass himself off as a human even though clearly he isn't. The reason I picked this one is it's sort of like towards the end of his career because he's retired now but 1997 CGI was coming about and Adam Savage's Tested which you could find the interview on YouTube goes through like all of his old props and stuff like Rick Baker's unused props and stuff and he's talking about the bug at the end of Men in Black and we all know it's CGI. They took it out then. Yes which goes back to it but he said it didn't make any sense that a bug that big could hide inside of a human body so he wanted the bug to burst from the skin and then hold up edgar's head to talk because he he also didn't think that it would make any sense on why the bug would talk and they just kept kind of shooting him down and it's interesting because he went on to doing the effects for all three men in black movies but he made this awesome giant animatronic bug exoskeleton which you could see in the video and the day that they were supposed to shoot it they came up to him and just said we're not using that anymore it doesn't look enough like a bug so (laughs) they replaced it with a giant cgi bug (laughs) he also won the oscar for norbit for the costume (laughs) (laughs) norbit that's amazing to me i just love that i think that's so great (laughs) Yeah, that's great that he won for that. Duality of man. The makeup in Norbit is really good, so I get it. It makes sense. Rick Baker himself, I guess, before he retired is, because that was replaced by CGI, the bug, and uh, he's kind of embraced the CGI part of it. Like, a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, that sucks. You know, he should have used my exoskeleton, but he's also gone on to say, hey, they could do stuff we can't with CGI. So he's kind of embraced that evolution. There's some movies that are using, they're still using practical effects, but they're using CGI to enhance them. Like, I know Color Out of Space, for example, is one where they used practical effects for everything, but then they just threw a little shimmer of of CGI on top to really kind of make it pop, and it works because you can still feel the the reality of the practical effects, and you can still feel the real visceral reaction that the actors have to everything, but they can just make it like it's a little cleaner and a little bit shinier and a little bit more pinky purple for Color Out of Space's example. I like to see, I mean, I love to see practical effects more, but I like to see when they still use those and just sort of clean them up a little bit with CGI when they have to. Right. Yeah, 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 that's my favorite 
implementation of cgi is that that kind mm. of like where they kind of touch up the practical effects like you said it really yeah. it like grounds it within the scene in a way that, that just the cgi couldn't i think absolutely i believe kelly wanted to talk about a kind of related effects artist who also worked on the exorcist i did so i want to talk about rob botine or as i've been mispronouncing it my entire life rob botten he <laughs> was a protege of rick baker's actually at age 14 he submitted a series of illustrations to rick baker who was a very well-known special effects person at the time and Baker hired him for King Kong in 1976 so that was his first movie that he really worked on with Rick Baker was King Kong he also worked on the Star Wars cantina scene uh, the creatures that were involved in that but he was of course uncredited for that as you mentioned earlier there are a lot of effects that go uncredited he got permission when he was working with Rick Baker he got permission from his school to let him skip classes in the afternoon so he could go work with Rick Baker in the afternoons which is amazing and he worked with him on a couple of films so when he finally started working on his own his first big break that he had was for the Howl which is when he was called to create an on-screen transformation from man to werewolf. He later worked on the special effects makeup in Ridley Scott's Legend, which Legend is legendary when you look at Tim Curry's amazing prosthetic effects that he has the horns there. So that actually earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Makeup. I don't believe he won that year, but he's had some incredible, incredible films in his roster. He did The Thing, he did Total Recall, Seven, The Howling, The Fog, Legend, and he was the creature advisor for Mimic, which was the first movie to really scare the shit out of me as a child. So I have to <laughs> props for that. And also, fun fact, he was originally slated to direct Freddy vs. Jason before it went into development hell. But what I want to talk about first is The Howling. So he had the opportunity to change an actor into a nine-foot werewolf without optical tricks. That was what really sold him on the idea of doing The Howling. So Robotine's effect appeared actually five months before Baker's similar scene in American Werewolf in London because Baker was originally hired to do The Howling, but he left it to work on American Werewolf in London and passed The Howling on to Botine. So that's how they both kind of ended up in the films that they worked on. It's entirely likely uh-huh. that they did share tips and tricks because when you look at them, there are some similarities, especially in the way that like the snout protrudes and things like that that so I would fully believe that they worked together on that because it's you know it's a collaborative effort and they both did an amazing job on both of their films and I love it and I think that with the howling one of the things that I really really love about that one is the bubbling under the skin is a very very cool effect there's a live transformation there there's no trick shots at all it's all done live there's that gradual pushing of the ears the claws the teeth the snout all of that and the fact that I mean when you look at an American werewolf in London the reaction that he has is very like oh my god this is terrible and horrifying and very viciously painful. The reaction of the werewolf transformation, the howling, is terrifying because he's a villain and he's doing this and he's just sort of like yep this is happening which is very threatening there's no panic on his end he's just transforming into this werewolf and the entirety of the panic is on the side of the viewer and the side of the of the witness to this event who knows that she's in some deep shit when she's watching this almost like he wanted it whereas in an american werewolf in london he didn't want it and he didn't know what was going to happen exactly it's like an american wolf in london he's fighting it the entire time whereas in the howling he's like he's embracing it. he's like nope i want to wolf the fuck out let's do this so that's a really cool element to that whole transformation scene. Another werewolf transformation scene that I love that I feel like is highly inspired by both of those was done by, I believe, Greg Nicotero, who I wanted to discuss because he's also amazing, but no time. But uh, I'm pretty sure he did the one for Hemlock Grove. I love the werewolf transformation sequence in that one. Like, it's almost better to me than the other ones, but the other ones are more practical, so they're better. And also, (laughs) Hemlock Grove is a lot more recent, so he's got years of effects to go 
into it. So we'll give them the benefit there. <laughs> so for Robotine, the next one I want to talk about is The Thing, of course. So The Thing, although the film was not really popular with critics when it first came out, it has seen a massive resurgence now, of course. It's hugely popular. It is a cult classic. Everyone loves it. And although Robotine's work was at first criticized for being too gruesome or distracting from The Thing's psychological themes, it has since been credited for actually enhancing the feel of the film. So there's that one scene yeah. in which a character's head sort of stretches off and Botine decided to melt plastic for that just to kind of make that effect really kind of stretch. Little did he know that the melted plastic released explosive paint thinner. So when John Carpenter oh decided to put flame under the camera lens, the entire prosthetic exploded. Oh my God. So fun fact there, they just exploded it. John Carpenter at the start of his movie when he was working with Rob Botine said to him, you know, the thing is the star of my movie. So Botine is his agent. It's up to him to try and figure out what's best for the thing, what's best for creating this monster, for making it all work. Great analogy. <laughs> yeah, right? He ended up working seven days a week, including late nights, at, for a year and five weeks straight, producing every creature effect. The only one that he had some help with was Stan Winston's The Transformed Dog in the, in the Kennel, which is an amazing effect that absolutely blows my mind and yeah. destroys me emotionally every single time. Also, I believe that's the first creature shot, right? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the first times that we see anything really happen. And it's this moment of, holy shit, what is going on? And it's such a crazy, insanely amazing moment. And I love it so much. Much, and it also makes me very upset because I feel terrible for those poor dogs. But according to the making of documentary on the DVD, Rob Bottin, who was then like 22, 23 years old when this movie was made, after working this insane schedule, which is so punishing and his attention to detail was so insanely precise, he actually had to be hospitalized for exhaustion and pneumonia for a couple of, I think, weeks wow. afterwards because he just pushed his body to its edge and just fell off the cliff, basically, and needed to be uh, oh, needed to get helped out. My whole thing with the thing is that I watch it and it's just like, how? Like, how how, 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 how is everything done when you look at the, the little crawling head with the legs that skitters away with the mouth that opens up and bites the guy's arms off? Everything is just this insane effect that you don't know how he did it, but my God, thank God he did it because it looks so incredible. Yeah. So even though the film wasn't well reviewed initially, Botine's effects were really well appreciated and again, kind of saved the movie. And for those who are not aware, The Thing is a remake from a 1950s, as I mentioned earlier, 1950s film called The Thing from Another World that has a similar story but it's sort of more botanical in nature so i think what they did with this movie were making it like alien extraterrestrial which it sort of is in that film as well but making it a lot more sinister that it takes over your body and then it transforms you and having this idea of this body horror transformation really makes it stand out really makes it a classic and also when you add those psychological elements in there as well it pops and i fucking love that movie so much it's crazy to me though that people didn't receive that movie well when it came out because i think it the creature designs in that and are, no. like capture the lovecraftian feel of the movie like that's what makes it what it is that's crazy I don't know what year it was released, but like horror wasn't super mainstream back then either. So like a no, lot of those true. effects, like kind of like people were kind of creeped out by them or grossed out by them. <laughs> it just yeah, makes but... me wonder like what movie now is going to be that cult classic? What are we going to look back at like years from now and be like, this one, it's not going to be muck. <laughs> the next ones I want to talk about is Robocop and Total Recall, which I will just touch on lightly briefly because Botine designed and built Robocop's suit in Paul Verhoeven's Robocop, and he also designed and built many of the special effects in Total Recall, which earned him a Special Achievement Academy Award in 1991. So he finally got that Oscar. And as a special achievement, like for a lifetime of amazingness. So really, that's the one you want to win, I think. 
fucking love Robocop. <laughs> Robocop is so great. He also did the practical effects for Seven, which is totally dramatically different. And the thing that I love about Seven and his effects work in that movie in particular is that it's these insane practical effects that push the limits of the human body. And it makes the film truly horrifying because without such effective effects, it wouldn't have the same gravitas, I think. It, there's this hyper-realism to it, that this grittiness to it, that otherwise is just kind of a police procedural. But when you throw in all these elements, these horrific body horror elements, that aren't fantastical in nature. They're very, very fucked up. But at the same time, they're very well based in reality. It's not an alien. It's not anything supernatural. It's this is a person has done this to someone else, which makes it truly horrifying. Yeah. So I love that hyper-realism in Seven. I think that that is so, so fantastic. Yeah, and it makes it more shocking too, because it's just a, it's a mystery movie without those effects, but you truly are in awe of what this person has done because of the incredible scenes and showing what he's done huh? exactly yeah. and the fact that they show it too it's not just like oh here's we're just gonna pan over and you're gonna see like an ankle that's cut up or bloody it's no right. they show you everything they go into great gruesome detail and i think having rob Bottin come in to do that was such a smart idea because they're like if we're gonna make this work we're gonna make this work and so bringing someone in who really knew what he was doing and he's, he's really one of the masters i think was a very smart decision on david fincher's part a man who makes many smart decisions on a regular basis. So yeah, so with Rob Poutine, he disappeared for a while. Nobody had heard from him for a couple of years. He just kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. And then suddenly in 2014, I think he reappeared with an INDB credit for Game of Thrones, for an episode of Game of Thrones, which I believe is the episode with Joffrey's wedding and where he, spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen this show from 2014, is poisoned and is clawing at his throat. I'm pretty sure it was that effect, but I'm not 100% sure if it was that one specifically, but it is that episode. Anyways, he's uncredited on the episode but that is my ramble about Rob Bottin who I was initially going to talk about Tom Savini because I absolutely love Tom Savini I watched this incredible documentary on Shudder I think it's called Smoke and Mirrors that is fantastic again plug for Shudder because we have to have one every episode but I highly <laughs> recommend that documentary if you haven't seen it it really made me appreciate him on a whole new level I was literally going to talk about him up until like two hours before we recorded and then I was like oh but we're talking about body horror he hasn't really done a ton of body horror I have to change gear years immediately and Rob Bottin was the first person I thought of when it comes to body horror because the thing is just absolutely iconic when it comes to body horror really. Evan who are you talking about today? <laughs> I'm going to talk about Robert Kurtz who uh kind of for the back half ours ours will kind of go together very well Brie. Because they did films together? Yeah they have. I guess I'll I'll start out with he kind of had a love for effects ever since he was a kid and he said, you know, that kind of like you did, people seem to be interested in the directors and the auteurs and that he was always interested in the monsters and how they made them. Mm -hmm. So he, he kind of was in art school and, and didn't know really what, where to gear his career. And he finally decided after he had saved enough money to move to L.A. And in 1984, he dropped out of Crestline Community College. And his parents drove him to Los Angeles, helped him find an apartment. And from there, he started trying to get gigs uh, working on effects. And he, he said it, that the, the reason was that school wasn't really his speed. He just wanted to yeah. make monsters. And uh, as we know, any great success story starts with a college dropout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he began working almost immediately based on his talent and quickly gained some pretty notable credits such as Evil Dead 2, the original Predator, The Fly, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3. 
Wish that were me. <laughs> and then decided to branch out with some friends and open up his own effects shop. Those friends being Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger. And they called their group K&B Effects. And at the, over the first year, it sounds like they they struggled a bit to, to obtain any notable work. And that in 1989, they landed their first job on a film called Intruder, directed by Scott Spiegel. And that kind of was their stepping stone to they had something to show then. And that quickly led to other gigs, including Nightwish, Bride of Reanimator, which Screaming Mad George also worked on. Love that movie. Misery and Army of Darkness. It seems like I was looking through kind of his filmography and stuff and trying to fill some of my blind spots in and, and information and what I had seen. And it seems like him and John Carpenter and Sam Raimi and all of them were very close. Like so they seem to all be friends because they pop up in each other's stuff a good bit. It seems like as either they helped him with effects or they helped him with played some kind of small role or something. And it's kind of cool to see how kind of tight knit their community was. And I, I like yeah, that. Yeah, both of the Raimi brothers are in Intruder as is Bruce Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Campbell and, is like uh, a very brief cameo, but like it's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I watched in preparation for this was I didn't pick it for one of my main ones, but to name drop a movie called Body Bags, which is a, an anthology that John Carpenter and Toby Hooper directed. And Wes Craven plays a part in that. John Carpenter plays a part in it. So does Toby Hooper. And and it's it's just really cool to see. I think Sam Raimi might as well. I can't remember for sure. But it's cool to see that they all work together so closely like that. I love those filmmaking relationships. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You kind of see it a lot in like the modern independent scene. It, it happens like with the, the Joe Swanberg and Ty West and all those guys that work yeah. on those kind of mumble gore movies and stuff like that. Squad. So after he got his first directorial credit under his belt for a film called The Demolitionist, he began working on the story for a little movie called From Dusk Till Dawn, which his friend John Esposito was supposed to write the screenplay for, but got pulled on to another project, a Stephen King adaptation called Graveyard Shift. So Robert kind of put out the word that he needed a writer. In the interview, he was quoted as saying they introduced him to this guy that was writing some cool things named Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> Who, as of yet, hadn't made a film. And so, to prove his worth to Kurtzman, Quentin passed along three finished but yet unmade scripts. One for True Romance, one for Natural Born Killers, and one for Reservoir Dogs. And obviously, wow. he, he got the gig. <laughs> and so they wrote the script for From Dusk Till Dawn, but actually, it didn't get picked up for production until years later. Kurtzman tried to get it made himself with him as the director and never could do it and so I, I guess Robert Rodriguez and Quentin were discussing movie ideas at a festival and this one came up so they kind of approached Kurtzman to make it and by this time he had kind of given up on the idea of directing it and just wanted to see it get made really and so he gladly accepted their offer as long as he could produce and create all the effects in in their shop and that turned out to be a pretty defining moment in his career you know and led to him getting a lot bigger things and and leading on to the dir the directorial gig for Wishmaster. Tom Savini's also in that too, isn't he? He's the guy with the gun and the, the penis gun. Yeah, yeah, he Sex has machine. the penis gun. gun. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently for that role, he auditioned for that role. Like he sent them a video. <laughs> they were huge, huge fans of Tom Savini and his work before he sent in the tape. And so Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino were like looking at all these audition tapes and they see one from Tom Savini. And like, he's giving it his all. Like he's going all out into it. He's having an absolute blast. And like, can we put Tom Savini in our movie? Like, can we, can we do this? And they did. <laughs> And, and like he's absolutely amazing and like he's so great he is, and he he's also great. he's a stuntman as well and like oh my god I'm, i just i i just love tom savini. savini is like the ultimate man he's the ultimate he does it all jack of all trades he's like basically god absolutely <laughs> he's like basically god <laughs> 
at that point in his career, after he had done Wishmaster and stuff, Robert kind of, he had a family by that point. He had some young kids, which fun fact, one of his children, Louis, is in a movie that we talked to the directors for on our podcast called Poser. And he does a great job in it. And he's also in Black Friday, which is one that Robert did effects for that's an upcoming movie. I saw that at Fantastic Fest and really liked it. But he had a family. And he, in 2002, decided to leave L.A. and take his young kids to a more quote-unquote family-oriented area before the lifestyle of L.A. had become the norm for them. And they moved back to his hometown of Crestline, Ohio, and a few years later, he opened his own production company called Precinct 13 Entertainment, which I love the nod in that name there. It kind of seems like it didn't really work out, but they did release a fully funded directorial feature from Kurtzman called The Rage in 2007. There's only two movies that that production company ever put out. One was The Rage, and one was something that had Tom Savini in it. That was the connection of how they got hooked up and produced it. He kind of worked on various projects over the next decade or so including It Follows, Tusk, The Bye-Bye Man, and Gerald's Game before accepting a job as the makeup slash MUFX co-department head for Netflix and Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. And he then moved his shop to Atlanta and formed Robert Kurtzman MUFX LLC, where he has worked on such films as Ma, Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, Dr. Sleep, and the upcoming Black Friday, which I mentioned. Well, I didn't know that he was still, like, working so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like he kind of, going by his, his filmography, took kind of a break there around the time he had the production company and stuff. And, like, maybe f- five to ten years, he didn't do a lot. Uh, he did a, a little here and a little there, but then kind of circa 2014 with Tusk, he kind of really came back. As one of the few people with Tusk and, like, their favorite movies of all time, that uh, <laughs> animatronic walrus human hybrid is incredible. <laughs> Yes, it, is, it really is. I feel like the 2000s was like a dead space for special effects artists. I guess because CGI was like new at the CGI, time, yeah. and they were like, yeah, exactly. They were just CGI like, things. Yeah, they're like, we have this new technology, and we want to embrace it because it's the 2000s, and we have technology, and we want to embrace it. The good news is it's kind of looped back to practical yes. over the last few yes. years. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's it. why if you go watch movies from the early 2000s, they haven't aged as well as a lot of other stuff because they relied so heavily on that CG that has not doesn't look good now, you know? I know a lot of people really hate the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot because of his face looking mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> yep. Looking like that. I am one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things, the, the Thing prequel was like that also. Yeah. They pulled all the, they made. Thing was a little better, I feel. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those situations, though, where they made, like, hundreds of practical effects for it that they didn't even use in the movie, like you you mentioned before, you know, where they cut it out and did a lot of CG instead. That's shameful. For the thing. It's weird, because, like, you'd think that they would put all the money into it and then use it, but it seems like they put all the money into it, then use more money to hire effects artists to redo it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Three of the productions that I want to highlight for Robert Kurtzman, one of them we talked about a bit already from Dusk Till Dawn, because I think that the vampire effects in that are just amazing. Oh, yeah. There's massive fight scenes inside the bar that have probably, what, 30 vampires or so at a time, like inside Mm -hmm. the, the bar, and they're all brawling and throwing stuff all over the room. And it's just really, really impressive. And he designed almost all the creatures and built everything in house for the movie with this team. And actually, including over 100 effects that never even 
made it onto the screen. They made so much stuff for it that they didn't even get to use it all. One of the cool things about the effects for that movie as well, because I just watched it recently for Sex Machine, and I love that they combine pyrotechnics with practical effects. Like there's multiple yeah. scenes where they have bodies exploding and guts flying yeah. everywhere. And like, that is so cool to be able to do that. And again, like it looks awesome and it makes for such a like rambunctious, vivacious, exciting, violent, vicious movie, I think. So there's a few specific effects that I really liked in this one that they kind of created specifically for this, including a stake that where they stake the vampires that has tiny holes that you can't see all around it that gush blood out from a hose that they've ran up the actor's arm. So when they stake the bodies too, they combine this effect of the person doing the staking with the effect of the false body like we talked about before where there's an actor through a prosthetic and then they stab the prosthetic but the actor reacts to it in real time and stuff so it's like that had to be such a pain in the ass to get all that exactly right and pull it off but it's it, incredible that they did amazing another one was they had a tube on the actor's neck so there's scenes where the vampires feed on people and it's like you almost see it as it's happening like they bend over and you see them like munching on the person's neck and they have that hose rig that is operated by a pump that's off screen that they're sitting there pumping blood and making it spray out as the vampire is feeding on the human. So that was really creative. And there's just some beautifully horrific silicone sculpts that, like I mentioned before, with the introduction of the silicone stuff, could be realistically dismembered. So there's one part where they pull somebody's arm off and it, you see it like stretch out and it looks like skin mm. stretching and stuff. And it's just super gruesome and gory and realistic. And it's just awesome looking. They actually won a KMB Effects, won a Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Best Makeup Effects on that and a Saturn Award for Best Makeup. The second feature that I want to highlight that he worked on is Cabin Fever, Eli Roth's film. And I think this one's super unique because like there's not a lot of movies that do like skin infections, you know, and stuff like that. Of Cabin Fever. And it's super gross. All the flesh designs were based on real world infections, like a lot of which they sourced from cast and crew that had contacted, you know, various skin infections in the past. And so they used all those gruesome details to kind of feed the effects team these vivid descriptions of this fucked up looking skin disorder that they had or skin infection. Billy Roth was like, everyone send me pictures of your grossest skin infections. <laughs> yeah, it's just an excuse to get his fix. <laughs> he would. <laughs> yeah, he said there's a scene where one of the characters is shaving her legs and the skin starts just peeling off. Oh, the yeah. worst. I hate that scene. <laughs> Right? It's so, it makes you cringe so hard. <laughs> he was inspired by a real life event that he experienced. He had, when he was young, a skin disorder that, when he was shaving his face, caused chunks of skin to come off. And that's where he got that idea from. And then they, they took it to the next level by making it her entire leg. So another fun fact about this movie is that one of the crew members took home this decapitated body prop once the filming had wrapped. And he was pulled over and held at gunpoint on the way home. <laughs> oh, my God. By police who thought that the body was real. <laughs> and it was he was held at gunpoint for like several minutes until they confirmed for Terrifying. sure that this was a prop. And then they obviously let him go and stuff. If that doesn't sell the, the quality of these prosthetics and these practical effects and I don't know what does you know Kevin <laughs> Fever is peak body horror yeah it's great I love how it has the various like all the characters kind of react to it a little differently in that movie like they all go about it a different way so jock kind of asshole character realizes he's got it he's very secretive about it the girl is very open about it and like look i need help we need to leave here and go get help so i think they kind of cover all the bases and i just i like that movie a lot and then the final feature i, I want to highlight is tusk 
And like we mentioned before, that walrus animatronic is just master level work. Like it is, it is so terrifying and just so like also just goofy and bizarre as hell at the same time. And like, it's a kind of a, not a common thing either, I think, to see human animal hybrids outside of like werewolf movies. Especially walrus. Yeah, especially yeah. a walrus, right? Especially yeah. one that was man-made. Like he made that. <laughs> like the, the guy yeah. in the movie. <laughs> And he did a great job. <laughs> like super weird conceptually. And they like really pulled it off on the visual side. Mm-hmm. These incredible effects. And it's like, I love how it's, it's kind of a slow transition. Cause he's doing him part. He's like transitioning him into a walrus part by part. Right. So it's slowly revealing itself to that creepy, like animatronic that we love. And uh, the buildup is really good. Yeah, and it's so surgical too. Like, yeah, just cringy. Cause it's like back alley, like surgery that like doesn't look clean at all. Like it looks very mm-hmm. like gross. Like yeah. you're going to get a bad infection, but like it makes it so like unsettling too, because you can't come back from that. Like you see the final, mm-hmm. a few before the final reveal of the walrus and you're like, how would he come back from this? Like, can yeah. he? Can't control yeah. Z or way out of that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's got that definitely that grungy, like back alley surgery feel like American Mary almost. But like, yeah, on but a like dirtier, not willing, you know, <laughs> yeah, it just it just everything just looks infected. Like, it's just unfortunate yeah. <laughs> on so many counts. One of the interviews I watched, Kurtzman, somebody asked him what was the weirdest thing he's ever made. And he said, probably that fucking walrus. But the experience was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no matter how you feel about Tusk, like you cannot deny that that walrus prosthetic work is amazing. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. unique. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's, even if you don't like how it looks, it's you definitely can't say you've seen anything else like it. <laughs> and it's crazy that it all stemmed from a real Craigslist ad that Kevin Smith found. <laughs> yeah, <Right>? yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole story behind that movie and almost every aspect of it is super interesting. <laughs> this one also actually won an iHorror Award for Ooh, Best Makeup. Know effects. them? Yeah, you guys know them. We are them? <laughs> we are them. <laughs> we have a we have a passing familiarity. <laughs> are, you, are you allowed to vote on the iHorror Awards? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know okay. if you guys worked in the year. This was probably what 2016, 2015, was... maybe. You a part of that, Kelly? I was. Yeah. I think that was like my first year with iHorror. Was like 2015 or 2016. Oh, yeah. damn. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> There are a couple of the other notable works that I that I, I know I mentioned body bags already. I think there's some really cool effects. There's one where a, like a body gets smashed. That's really cool by a truck lift. And the second segment in that is something to do with this guy's losing his hair and he's trying experimental hair growth. Some of the effects are really weird in that one, but also some of them are amazing. There's like hair growing through his head, like out his mouth and stuff. And it looks really disturbing and cool. And then the third one, Mark Hamill stabs himself in the eye with some glass and it looks incredible. Oh my uh, God. Nice. <laughs> That's great. I also have a Mark Hamill special effects story when I get to my pick. Right on. I couldn't not mention this because, you know, young Evan would be so disappointed. But Robert Kurtzman also designed all of the turtles in the live action trilogy for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. And he worked as a makeup effects guy and puppeteer on those as well. I didn't even know that movie existed it's the stuff of nightmares too because there's videos where you can like see the actor's eyes and mouth inside of the costumes and it's literally <laughs> nightmare feel <laughs> like that. those were my favorite when i was a kid so I, I felt like i had to bring it up you know nice yeah <laughs> Is it Bebop and Rocksteady in the second one? Yeah, yeah. Bebop yeah. and Rocksteady. That's the secret of the ooze. That's the best one. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking my language now, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> so 
But yeah, this I think kind of segues perfectly into Bree's selection for uh, mm. special effects artist. Yes. So I chose Screaming Mad George mostly because I felt like a lot of the other picks were kind of more centered in like the real world and more like real things happening. Whereas Screaming Mad George, I think, is a really great example of someone who is a very fantastical and surreal special effects artist. All of his work has just been like crazy and very unique. And I think it's also like a good way to bring in like some other special effects artists that I think also have that vibe to them. Guillermo del Toro, all of his films are very surreal. And actually, fun fact, did you guys know that he also is a special effects artist? I learned that during the research for this episode, actually, through watching some <laughs> Robert Kirsten stuff. Did he do the thing from Pan's Labyrinth? He didn't do it, but the fact that he's like the director, you know, obviously oh. it's like, that's why all of his films have so much special effects going on because he started out as a special effects artist and he like shouted it out at the Oscars when he won the Shape of Water Best Picture. You know, he was like, monsters make us in America. So he would be a great example of a special effects artist for this episode, but he just gets a shout out. I think that's cool when like directors do a lot of their own effects like that. That's really cool. Yeah, like Steven Kostansky. And, yeah, Steven Kostansky, you know, he's a director <laughs> and he does yeah. the special effects. Also very surreal, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Peter Jackson kind of started that way also with like Bad Taste, Dead yeah. Alive and that stuff. Mm -hmm. He did all that. Oh, yeah. Like Bad Taste, he did all those prosthetics in his mother's house. He baked them in the oven and like... Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> it made it over four years on no budget pretty much. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So Screaming Mad George, his real name is Joji Tani. Funny story behind his name, actually. He grew up in Osaka, Japan, and when he was in Japan, he wanted his name to be more unique. So he decided to call himself George. And so then he moved to America. And when he went to America, his name was like obviously not unique anymore. So he was like, <laughs> I need a new name. And he went with Screaming Mad George, which is a combination of Screaming Jay Hawkins, which was one of his favorite bands, and Mad Magazine. So it turns out Screaming Mad George. That's the behind the scenes of his name, which is really fun and unique i love his that's name that's awesome like, it's so unique i wish yeah. that was my name yeah as soon as i saw it i thought of the screaming matt or screaming jay hawkins sorry yeah the two got me really confused there like what the hell yeah no very confusing <laughs> side by side before he did special effects he actually did music he was in a band called the mad and he did music videos where he did special effects and that's what got him into doing special effects and got him into hollywood oh. and he's most well known for working with brian usna the director of society the dentist of Reanimator, most well known as Society, of course. Yeah, Brian Usna, I think, was the connection to Robert Kurtzman he had. I think that's how they met oh, each really? other and how they knew each other. Yeah, it was through Brian Usna. Yeah. Screaming Mad George also worked on Predator. That was like his first movie ever that oh, he worked okay. on, which Kurtzman also worked on. Yeah, maybe they actually met there. Yeah, maybe. They both worked on Pride of Reanimator. I think there was another film you mentioned that they also worked on together as well. Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Oh, yeah, The Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Yeah. Yeah. Around yeah. on Street 3, they also worked on together. Yes, thank you, Kelly. Great memory. Kelly's on it. <laughs> In addition to films and, you know, because he also does music, he also designed the masks for Slipknot. And he also awesome. sometimes does makeup for Marilyn Manson. So he's got, like, a lot of things going on, which are really cool. In general, I would describe the special effects work he does as very surreal, very chaotic, punk rock, cartoonish, really fleshy and rubbery. I mean, often oh, yeah. it's stuff that I've never seen before. And I, I have not yet seen it replicated the 
stuff that he does. Like, it's very unique, very out there. He says that his work can be described as anti-realism and that there is no trace of digital editing in his works. Everything is handmade, precisely giving it an unsettling feeling of grotesque irreality. And then he also goes on to say, I don't like real violence, but I like created violence. You can enjoy fake violence, even if it's really, really horrible, but I don't like violence when it's real. I don't like anything that is real. And I think that's just like a very interesting like take on work because especially like compared to Tom Savini and Rick Baker, like a lot of that, or I guess not Rick Baker, Tom Savini at least, you know, they very much based in the real world and a lot of their work stems from things that they have seen in the, the real world. Whereas Screaming yeah. Mad George, I feel like everything he creates exists in his head. <laughs> yeah, it's like more of a, a Jans Bankman approach, huh? which I owe you my discovery of because you told me about the Alice movie that. Yeah, no, another very unique person too. And I guess he would, I don't know who does his effects, but that, those are also incredible. Stop motion. Yeah, really, really good yeah i love bringing stop motion into it too i mean we could do a whole episode on that too but that's future yeah. problem yeah <laughs> <laughs> the first films that i wanted to discuss with screaming mad george is almost the first films that he did were a nightmare on elm street three and four which like good gig to get nightmare on elm street three yeah. and four is like your first film from mm -hmm. 1987 and 1988 third one most people consider it to have the best special effects i would probably agree like the third one goes all out we did an episode on a nightmare on mm -hmm. elm street franchise by the way, Ooh. which you should check out. Log in again. Yeah. <laughs> but the third one is amazing. Specifically, he did the scene where the bodies of Freddy's victims are popping out of his body. And I think that he also worked on the snake Freddy. Ah, okay. And in the fourth one, he did the cockroach scene where the person transforms into a cockroach and she's inside like a roach motel and then she gets squished. And I love that scene as well because not only is it like freaking gross and whatnot, but you see like the progression of her turning into the cockroach and it's mm -hmm. all just like yeah. disgusting <laughs> the elbows like snapping back like oh my god yeah <laughs> His biggest gig, so to speak, and his most well-known is Society, directed by Brian Usna in 1989. And if you are not familiar with Society, it's about like a conspiracy involving the ultra-wealthy. turns out to be true when the main character walks into basically this like alien rich people orgy where everyone's bodies are melting together. And it's just incredible how it happens, like how everyone's bodies are combined in just this way that's looks real but also not real at the same time like it is kind of almost like a magical quality to it very surreal and it's crazy that someone could create that with their hands it almost mm. sounds like a really intense version of the human centipede <laughs> i mean the human centipede wishes it was society <laughs> yeah, and then of course like obviously i love things that are like sexual in nature so society is like my bread and butter and the special effects for that are just rivaled and a lot of people do consider that to be like the best special effects ever done in a movie. Next, another film that he did was Bride of Reanimator, which we briefly touched on, 1990. He worked on the crypt sequence near the end, which I believe it was actually supposed to be longer in the film, but they had to cut almost all of it out, oh. which is freaking ridiculous how they're always doing that. Yeah. In the crypt sequence, the reanimator plot is like a little crazy in this one, but Herbert West has created all of these like monstrous people 
people that are like his rejects basically and so they're basically like zombies but their bodies are not like the way they're supposed to be so like one person is like just a head with a foot on top of his head or like one person is two people like back to back stitched together so it's just like crazy insanity once again very chaotic and like the fact that it's so short and like the special effects work is so well done it makes me so sad that like it didn't get more screen time next he actually directed one film which is the giver in 1991 the film itself is like okay people were like eh, it's okay but like the special effects work obviously was amazing it was based on a manga actually and it's one of those manga where one like discovers this alien technology and it becomes like this exoskeleton on his body and he yeah. can like fight monsters with it so the transformation sequences in this where the main character like transforms this robot thing like it's just incredible and once again like a, an example of like that surreal quality put into real life which I would also think is similar to Stephen Kostansky's Psycho Gorman the effect when Psycho Gorman character like opens his mouth and he eats like characters like that's like something that seems directly out of anime but is like being translated into real life in a really like crazy specific way a warrior's yes, death yes, that one <laughs> yeah, and then also in the Giver, they have these crazy monsters that are all really fantastically designed and another thing that i noticed with screaming mad george's filmography is that all all of these monsters that he designs like full out monsters they all have these really amazing mechanical work done in their faces where they're moving their faces so realistically it's absolutely insane like something that not even cgi could like accurately do and it almost seems like it is cgi but it's not because it's like the 1990s so like they don't have the yeah. technology so you know that it's mechanical and it's just absolutely insane like how well done these monsters are and going back to mark hamill he's in this movie <laughs> for some reason. Oh, okay. In the movie, there's this transformation sequence where he transforms into this huge monster bug. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's this transformation sequence that's very similar, I would say, to like the werewolf transformation sequence in An American Werewolf in London, where he's kind of just like, all of a sudden he's like screaming, drops to the ground, and then all of his limbs like slowly like grow out. Oh and my God. And his like elongates, and he's like, I don't know what type of bug he is. I want to say like mantis <laughs> of some sort, but it's insanity, the transformation transformation sequence. That's what I love about his work is that it's so weird, so bizarre, and so surreal. And he does it so well in ways that no other special effects artist, I feel like, I'm. well, I'm sure some could, like, especially the people we're talking about. But it would be very hard to replicate what he's doing, especially today. Yeah. That movie in particular, I actually really want to check out, especially even more now that you've told me the things you've told me. But that one was brought up when I was researching Kurtzman because for his first feature, The Demolitionist that I mentioned, kind of had a Miss 45 style lo-fi revenge film at its conception. But once he got a production company involved and they wanted more of, of a RoboCop slash The Giver vibe to it. And so that shifted it and he added a lot of sci-fi elements to it. It was actually because of The Giver and RoboCop. Wow, that's surprising because I had, obviously I did not grow up in this time frame and so I had no idea that people had actually seen this movie or like what sort of critical reception it had or how many people saw it. Obviously yeah. Mark Hamill's in it so I was like I guess some people saw it but <laughs> and those people were super creeped out by the things that they saw. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is not Star 
Clone Wars. <laughs> what is that? Maybe it's the people that that like Kurtzman, those guys work with too, are, are very keyed in on this stuff. So maybe they had seen it, and maybe not a lot of Americans have. But they definitely brought it up and said that that's what shaped his. They pushed him in that direction to go for a Guyver Robocop kind of mm. feel for it. I know Ryan Usna also produced that film, so it was probably like a situation where obviously Screaming Mad George had done things up to that point. So uh, everyone was like, "We got you, bro! Like we're gonna help you with your movie." Yeah. <laughs> so the next movie I wanted to talk about, which I am so in love with this movie. It's Freaked, 1993. It's like a horror comedy directed by Bill Winters. That one funny guy. Let me just tell you guys, this movie is amazing. <laughs> Mr. T is in this. <laughs> what? He, is. he plays oh. a bearded lady. Wow. Nice. This movie is crazy bananas. It is a horror movie, but it's more of like a comedy horror movie. The comedy is like, you know, early 90s comedy. So it's like, you can probably vibe with it or you may not, depending on what type of person you are. But I, for one, enjoyed it heavily. The basic plot is like a mad scientist turns people into freaks. And I say that with quotations because I don't really approve of like, you know, calling people freaks or whatever. But he turns yeah. them into freaks to be in his freak show. So regular people show up expecting a freak show. They find this mad scientist. The mad scientist is like, actually, you're going to be in the freak show. And he turns them into freaks. Almost sounds like kind of tusk like because Tusk is like he just finds mm -hmm. someone to turn into a walrus. But this yeah. is like he just turns them into his own little show. <laughs> Basically, same. So on the trivia here, it says Keanu Reeves was paid $1 million for his uncredited role as Ortiz the dog boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i had wow. no idea he was the dog boy in that that makes it so much more amazing i highly recommend all of you guys and everyone listening to this watch this movie because it is just amazing it's great what a streaming service it's on nothing so you gotta buy it i'll buy it i don't well, think it's even like available you just gotta find it i'm sorry i don't know where it is uh, yeah find can, it somewhere and watch it i have my sources so another know? thing like if you guys watch american horror story the freak show season is like absolutely yes. 100% inspired by this movie because even down oh. to like the characters the you know freaks quotation marks they are like exactly the same archetype like they have a pinhead they have like a person with two heads yes. but yeah so there's like a lot of really cool special effects work in this all of the freaks quotation marks once again all like their own like really cool designs there's this one guy who's like a freaking worm and he looks like just bulbous <laughs> like I mentioned there's the two-headed person which I'm sure isn't too hard to do but and then the main character plays by Bill Winters. He's got like half of his face is like a monster face. And once again, like the monster work is really, really incredible here. Like it's not just prosthetic monster face, like regular. Like I don't know what he's doing, but like his monsters look crazy. And once again, like at the end, there's these two characters who get turned into these bigger monsters, hulking huge. So I don't know if they're completely mechanical or if there are people in there, but their design is just so realistic. I mean, obviously monsters don't exist but like if a monster existed it'd this look is just what like they'd that. be like huh <laughs> <laughs> after freaked a screaming mad george didn't really have too much that he did after that a big film he did that i really enjoy also is jack frost the horror one from 1997 every time this movie's brought up i always think it's the michael keaton one because i didn't know if <laughs> this one existed and i saw screenshots they're like doing a blu-ray collection of these horror Jack Frost and I was like wait this isn't Jack Frost <laughs> yeah. yeah you always have to clarify and they have like similar posters yeah too. I only knew this existed because I tried to rent it yeah. by accident when I was like six or something and I thought yeah. it was oh, the, no. the you know the kid movie and I took it to the counter huh. and the guy's like yeah you can't rent this this isn't what you think it is <laughs> <laughs> 
He had your back. That's nice of him. <laughs> he, he hooked me up with the correct copy of Jack Frost. They came out right, up, yeah, one year apart. So like, yeah. wow. I, mean, that's... <laughs> I wonder how many kids were traumatized by this movie. That's like, it goes pretty hard for a movie that can be described as like a killer snowman movie. Pretty violent. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to check it out. Because of the effects by Screaming Mad George, perhaps. <laughs> I've never went back and seeked it out. So I'm going to have to remedy that. Especially now that I know who did the effects. Well, the only reason I watched it is because it was on The Last Drive-In on Shudder with Joe Bob Riggs. Oh, okay. Yeah, so then after that, he hasn't really done too much. He did a little bit more music. But other than that, I think that he's just like painting or like drawing, maybe. I don't know. Hell yeah. Hopefully he's fulfilling himself wherever he's at, at, whatever he's doing, you know? Miss him. Maybe he's on Etsy. He should be. I would love to buy some things from him on Etsy. Right? Right? I would absolutely love that. You get like an original. (laughs) So like in 1997, you're saying he kind of disappeared. Does he do like the Slipknot? Because like when they get new people, they get new masks and stuff. Like, does he still do that? Or did he just do the original? That's a good question. I did not Google that. I wouldn't be able to tell you. And I don't want to say anything that I don't know the answers to. But I know he did do a few more films after Jack Frost. Jack Frost would be his last. He didn't do the sequels to Jack Frost? Jack Frost? I don't even know there was sequels. But no, he didn't do that. He did a few <laughs> other like weird sequels. I know that he did Island Night, Deadly Night 4 and 5, which is very strange that he did those. But I also know Brian Usna directed Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, so that's probably why. That's probably, yeah, the connection. Did him a favor. I've certainly <laughs> never gotten that far in the Silent Night, Deadly Night franchise, so <laughs> not know if they're good or not. But I do love the second one, I do have to say. I've never seen any of those. The second one is good, in my opinion. I definitely recommend checking out the second one. Well, it's not good. Funny. I've seen some scenes, and they're, like, really bad, but they're funny. <laughs> it's the one the garbage day scene it's garbage day yep yep that's the garbage scene i've seen day. Oh, yeah. oh that's what that's from okay i've seen that clip that's what that's from that. yeah <laughs> garbage day huh? every time it's garbage day i'm like it's garbage day in my head yeah, that sounds <laughs> like something that i would dig i love that like corny like no definitely so watch fun. that it's it's like right good. up there with like troll 2 in terms of like weird oh, line yeah. delivery at times they're reading her yeah. and then they're going to eat me oh my god <laughs> oh my god after that his last few things that he did was faust which was also brian used not 2000 oh, yeah. beyond reanimator the third reanimator movie in 2003 which i personally have not seen so i can't speak on it and then he also i guess worked on this is the end but oh, wow. it's uncredited okay. so so weird when they're uncredited oh. so it's like did you do it or did you not Probably did. There, there's a few. Like I was saying, that's a common thing. Like I know Robert Kurtzman, he mentioned in one of these interviews that he worked on Aliens on a couple of different major prosthetics that they used and didn't get credited for that. Bizarre. As a... I was looking through a lot of his stuff has uncredited in parentheses, you know, behind it. So I don't know if he was just friends with the people or what. I'm not sure. Well, I wonder if it's also like if they're working with a particular company or like a, a special effects team yeah. that they may just be like, oh, today we're working on this project. Can you just do this and then ship it back off? Like if they're working with a group of people. That's true. Yeah. Also, the yeah, person could, yeah. in charge of collecting the credits could have just been really bad at their jobs. Happens. (laughs) But yeah, I also just, you know, wanted to end by saying in general, in terms of like surreal makeup artists, I value them a lot because of them really thinking outside of the box. And I just wanted to shout out, like before I said, Steven Kostansky, Guillermo del Toro, and also Mark Coulier, who I haven't mentioned yet, but he's also one of my favorite special effects artists. He did Suspiria 2018, AKA my favorite movie. I think Suspiria 2018 has like the most legendary body horror sequence 
with mm-hmm. the, the, that first dance. Mm-hmm. That is. Oh, yeah. And like, where's the camera in those mirrors? It's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. just yeah, immaculate. <laughs> One of the best scenes ever, in my opinion. Yeah, also, definitely. of course, I must mention the vagina in chest sequence, as I do in Suspiria. Anytime, you know, there's a vagina, I gotta mention it. Special effects wise, they don't do it that often. It was like a, a vagina, as opposed to Videodrome, where it's like not actually a vagina, but right. like brave mm-hmm. enough. Suspiria is like, no, this is a vagina. It's 2018. We're going there. <laughs> yeah. He also did the Blood Red Sky, the recent vampire flick for uh, Netflix. The Ger- oh, yeah. I was German, right? Oh, cool. We talked about that on an episode. Yeah. I like them. Yeah, he did the effects oh, for them. It's actually pretty good. <laughs> She's like, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, also another film that he did that I think deserves attention is Pinocchio that came out, I think, last year. The special effects in this movie are so fucking incredible. It's basically like, you know, the story of Pinocchio. They're making people look like they're made out of wood or like they're animals. And I have never seen special effects like this before where they look like freaking wood people. I don't know how he did it, but like just check out pictures of the makeup from that film. Never before seen, as I would describe most of these people like just crazy i have seen pictures they move i thought they were just like puppets those are people oh Oh, wow that's puppets they're people (laughs) (laughs) speaking of puppets and screaming mad george i do also want to give screaming mad george a shout out for doing the the makeup effects in nsync's video for it's gonna be me i watched that right before this episode and once again crazy because uh in that music video (laughs) the members of nsync are like barbie dolls or they're like action figures Mm -hmm. on a shelf yeah the action figures i remember they look Mm -hmm. they look like plastic. they're made out of yeah. plastic. I have no idea how he did this. I must know. I ever talked to him. Yeah, that's a really cool video. I remember that from years ago. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting how musicians see that stuff and then like hire them to do music videos off like just a horror exactly, movie. Exactly, yeah. Like thriller and yeah. Also, like I mentioned, Screaming Mad George was in a band himself and he also like worked with a lot of musical artists. So I feel like that was kind of just his thing because he was like into music probably first. And so he was probably trying to work with musicians and maybe people were like, actually, you need to be in films because you're incredible, but maybe secretly. <laughs> He just wanted to do music. And then there's also, speaking of practical effects in music videos, they had Tom Savini do Twisted Sisters Be Cruel to Your School. Aww. And he is in the video as Aww. well. Nice. And it's pretty adorable. For him. Yeah, adorable. He has a brief cameo. It's it's very cute. <laughs> Going back to Rick Baker as well, the Thriller music video was my favorite music video and my favorite song for most of my life because of that music video. Mm-hmm. It's solid. I love that music video. It's cool that sometimes you can find a special effect or a practical effect that you oddly relate to or that depicts a problem in a way that I think really visualizes it in a cool way. And my example of that is there's a movie called Bad Milo. I'm not sure. Yeah, I've seen it. It's definitely a mixed bag, I think, overall. But I just really love the way that they depict stomach problems as someone with Crohn's disease. I think that was a pretty genius way to go about that whole thing. So I just I think it's cool. Sometimes you can find a special effect that relates to your life in a weird way and that you feel oddly attached to, you know? Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> Mind stomach demons and breezes vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask you guys for, in terms of closing this conversation, do you guys have any thoughts on the relationship between special effects makeup and body horror? Any general thoughts on that or anything that you think just really adds to what we understand body horror as? Body horror couldn't exist without makeup effects. How do you show that on screen without mm-hmm. a makeup artist to, to, to give you a visual depiction of it, you know? So 
I think they definitely body horror goes hand in hand with with makeup effects. I think more directly than almost any other subgenre of horror. I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that we need practical effects to have effective body horror because if you tried to do it with CG, like mm, get out of here. No, it needs to be real. It needs to be practical. It needs to be felt. And something that you can connect with and, and have that fear of like, oh, shit, this could maybe happen to me in some weird fantastical world where I get abducted by a guy and turned into a human walrus. But maybe this could happen to me, you know? Yeah. So that is the end of our episode, unless anyone has anything else to say. Mm. Yeah, I just thank you guys for having us on. And we appreciate getting to talk about some cool ass stuff with you guys. And this was a super unique. Uh, I love that when we pitched ideas, you guys put a cool spin on it. And I, I like that you put that that detailed murmurs from the morgue spin on it i really liked that and this was fun thank you <laughs> if i may you can check us out mm-hmm. on twitter instagram all social medias is just at void video pod we post clips from our show as well as other stuff we're uh, on youtube as well now i've got one video under the void video banner but more in the works and we also have a website voidvideo.media where you can check out articles including reviews lists interviews film fest coverage all that kind of good stuff and uh, you can find our podcast on any podcast service where you like to listen to your stuff at uh, and it's just void video awesome. and we will definitely and we, i think we already have in there in the show notes we've got all your stuff linked in there where people can find you so they can just jump right in there click on some links we will have some relevant links for these conversations as well for different articles and things that we might have mentioned so if we've got no other final thoughts thank you so much for joining us on our lovely discussion on some really gruesome topics we really appreciate you guys have a wonderful halloween a fantastic october you can follow us on instagram twitter facebook and letterboxd on instagram facebook and letterboxd we are murmurs from the morgue on twitter we are morgue murmurs and our music intro is done by no orphans and our outro is by night tempo yeah happy halloween and thank you guys happy halloween thank you guys so much for joining us happy halloween (laughs) you on the slab but it's halloween